2: You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I am your host, Jordan Weissman, and uh, we are still in the process of pulling together one of our longer themed seasons for the show. So in the meantime, today's episode is going to be a nice little standalone. It's also going to be very meta. This is an episode for audio geeks, but also I think everyone who listens to this show, really any podcast fan, is going to have some appreciation for this episode. Why? Well, I'm talking to Tim Crosley, and he builds recording studios for a living. In fact, he built the recording studios that Slate records its podcasts in. I am sitting inside his handiwork right now, and of course we discuss that on the show. If you are into things like resonance and... <laughs> sound dampening and just kind of home recording geekery you're going to enjoy this and if you want a little peek into the technical side of how these shows that you love and listen to every day and week get put together uh, i think you will also appreciate it enjoy what's your name and what do you do tim crossley and i design and build recording studios I'm told that you designed and built the room we're in right now.
0: Yeah, I was reached out to by Jasmine, one of your producers, who did not know that she was asking me to come to a studio that we designed and built. We are sitting inside your work. It's very meta. You're, <laughs> it's, <laughs> this is—I am in your brain right, right yes. now. Yes. Great. Do you work with like a firm? I own my own firm with a business partner.
2: Oh, cool. So you are—you are a small business owner as well a, as a. I am. And how long have you owned The or been running, or how long have you been designing studios? The two somewhat started around the same time. I had been
0: uh, doing some freelance design work for a few years prior to that, but just felt I could do more and was handed an opportunity to design a studio for someone and use that as the opportunity to start my own business and have been going ever since. That was in the summer of 2011, so eight years.
2: Had you ever designed a studio before then? Not from scratch. I kind of got started more as
0: an audio engineer with also a design background and was working uh, working as a freelancer, trying to become an audio engineer. Wasn't very good at it. Yeah. Um, and simultaneously took a job working for a guy who built recording studios. So he was a contractor, I had spent about 25 years building recording studios and took me under his wing. And so I, I got a real kind of behind-the-scenes look of how they're built and simultaneously had a, a mentor who was a studio designer.
2: I, I want to pop back for a second and yeah, hear, sure about, thing. hear about your failure, though. Yeah, <laughs> there's <laughs> numerous failures yeah, you said, <laughs> along the way. You said you were an audio engineer. Well, first off, for people who don't know, like, what is an audio engineer?
0: So an audio engineer would be someone who works in a recording studio, who records any amount of content. It could be a, a band. It could be podcasts. It could be sound effects for film, television.
2: So you're the person in charge of making sure it sounds good.
0: Yeah. You yeah. record it, you mix it, and master it.
2: And so that's what you wanted to do. And you said you weren't very good at it. What happened? Like, <laughs> well, why, why, were you, why were you so terrible? <laughs> oh, uh, a lot of reasons.
0: One, it's a pretty heavily saturated market. There are more people looking for jobs in that field than there are. Are actually jobs in that field, so the competition is pretty high.
2: I see all those ads, like for like audio engineer courses on the subway. There are a stuff. lot of
0: for-profit colleges yeah. who tell their students that you too can be an audio engineer. Um, so they're
2: just like flooding the market.
0: They are absolutely, huh. and it's it's very much a market where where you intern, you get coffee, you do anything you can to get a job. And I was doing that. I was I was kind of paying my dues. Were you
2: getting coffee for anyone cool, or was it just?
0: Rarely. <laughs> Rarely. Not, not even. Occasional sessions that I would run with some pretty big name actors, which was which was a lot of fun, just to meet some interesting people. Mm-hmm. But because I had been working for this guy building recording studios, I'd get hired by another audio engineer, maybe a maybe a senior audio engineer on a project. And I'd say, hey, let me, let me help you edit your film. And they would say, yeah, yeah, that's great. But my room sounds terrible. And I heard you can help me with that too. So I had this kind of epiphany moment that maybe I'm following the wrong path. Maybe there are more people People out there who could use this other set of skills that
2: I have, and and I just started to pursue it. That's like a, a useful amount of self awareness. You're just like, you were you like I'm not just going to keep beating down the door at this thing that's not working. It's like oh, these other people want to pay me money to do this other thing.
0: Oh yeah, you know? I mean I I arguably work more hours now, but I I have a lot more control and I have a service that people need, and there are fewer people for our customers to call for our services.
2: So the world is flooded with engineers, but there aren't a lot of people who actually build studios. Why is that? Tough to say. Uh,
0: I think there are a lot of audio engineers because there's nowadays we live in a world with a a lot of content. There's millions of hours of podcasts and TV shows and movies and all sorts of things being produced every year. All of those things at one point are touched by audio engineers. So every sound effect you hear on a film, absolutely everything was recorded by somebody uh, and put into that film and, and mixed. So there is a great need for audio engineers. In terms of why there's not that many people that design studios. I think it's a unique intersection of different disciplines. There are architects who design spaces, interior designers who design interiors. There are acoustic engineers who consider the acoustic requirements of a space, uh, but a little bit more on the commercial world. There are acoustic engineers who design the interiors of lobbies or offices or conference rooms. I think our work is a little niche, and everyone that I've met who's kind of gotten into the field that we're in has a strong love and background of of music and design that has kind of brought them to this to this place
2: because you actually build you're not just you know doing the blueprint it kind of is a little bit more you know there's the design there's the kind of heady intellectual element of it you have to have that skill set but then there's also like the building element of it too and a lot of people don't necessarily kind of like Mix those skills.
0: Yeah, that's that's been the thing that's kind of set us apart from our competition over the years. New York City has a lot of talented fabricators, but they don't necessarily have that underlying knowledge of acoustics to be able to come in and say, "What does this room need to to influence how it sounds?" Similarly, I, I don't think that a lot of people who are younger are that interested in going into service based industries these days. Uh, you want to go to college and you know get a high paying job sitting at a desk. Uh, you don't want to necessarily be using your using your muscles to make your living.
2: I imagine this has to be kind of boom times for you guys, though, because like everyone has a freaking podcast. (laughs) Like, it ain't just Slate. It's not, yeah. Yeah, So there have to be a lot of podcast studios getting built. I mean, have you? are you seeing a a lot of work these days? Yeah, we are quite busy. I think a lot of people
0: imagine recording studio and they think music. And the music industry has changed drastically over the last two decades. There are far fewer large label-owned recording studios than there used to be. But what you have a lot of, uh, that kind of coincided not only with with change to the types of content that's being created, podcasts being definitely something that's driving it, but also changes to the technology. Uh, Nowadays, anyone can buy a little device for a hundred bucks that connects to their computer via USB that they can stick a microphone into and they can record
2: themselves. Even I've got like a jerk like me got <laughs> my, my home mic set up and my <laughs> little, you know, plug my guitar in and start playing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely. It's just become a lot easier for people and people are very aware of self-promotion. They want to record themselves. They want to put it out there in the world for people to hear. And as that's gotten easier, you've just got more people creating and all of them ultimately at some point, if they're pursuing doing it Semi-professionally or professionally, start to arrive at this realization that okay, I've got a good microphone, I've got good equipment, but why do my recordings all sound like they're recorded in a bathroom? Because
2: uh, <laughs> it was. Because it was. <laughs> oh. actually and, and it's an uh, old Weird Al Yankovich approach. <laughs> 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 I got to get that natural reverb. Yeah, <laughs> natural reverb and some no. accordion. So <laughs> we can't help with
0: the accordion part, but um, we can go in and help them make their room sound better, and ultimately that influences the quality of their recordings.
2: What is your typical job? Right? Right now.
0: Our typical job, we do a lot of work for post-production facilities, facilities that are either writing music for film and television or commercials or they're editing films or they are mixing audio for film. So surround sound or Dolby Atmos type mm-hmm. environments.
2: So what is the room you're building? Like, what is that space?
0: Typically in a recording studio, you have a couple of different rooms depending on what type of work they're doing within that space. Most often you have the room where the engineer sits, which is typically called the control room. Mm -hmm. That's where Uh,
2: Jessamyn's sitting right now. That's where
0: Jessamyn's sitting. Hey,
2: Jessamyn. She's waving.
0: You have that room where the engineer sits. That is where things are being played back and mixed most
2: often. And that has to be designed and actually there has to be like some acoustic logic to that room
0: definitely there are a wide variety of things that we design for to make that room sound accurate ultimately engineers are making judgment calls on how they mix all the different elements say it's a song they've got guitar drums bass vocals they need to mix all of those things in the stereo field to sound pleasing together and we design rooms to accommodate that
2: yeah, I, I never really thought about it, but now I'm staring through the window into the control room, and yeah, there there's, you know, strategically kind of laid out panels all across and it's not like someone just said oh yeah i have to throw that up on the <laughs> wall that'll look good there. There's like, some thought that goes into yeah. it. Yeah. So okay you got the control room. Okay and then what, what else is in the space?
0: In a post-production environment or yeah. a small recording studio typically you'll have something similar to what we are in yeah. uh, which is a booth or an isolation booth where uh, you can put musicians, singers, instruments things that get loud that you don't want that sound to bleed into other rooms but also working the other way you don't want sound from the outside to bleed in. You wouldn't want, say, a fire truck to drive by and your microphone picks that up and destroys your take.
2: So you got the booth, the isolation room, you got the control room. Is that the basics or is there other stuff?
0: Sometimes in larger recording studios, specifically ones for music, you might have a room called a live room. And a live room is a room where you're going to put a lot of musicians. You might put an entire band in there. And it's a much larger space that can accommodate numerous people.
2: The booth is where you might have you know christina aguilera doing her vocals i don't know why why was christina i just <laughs> for good. some reason i just dated myself anyway i'm not you know, i'm not even going to reach for a more reasons. genie in the bottle genie bottle in a bottle was recorded in a booth yeah in a booth and then you've got the live room which is separate and that's going to be the that's where the whole band is
0: yeah or okay. it could be something like a, a place to stick uh, an orchestra if
2: you're recording a film score we now have the we've got the floor plan in our heads so you get a job where do you start someone says, come build me this studio, this this space. How does that, how does that begin for you?
0: Yeah, we kind of go through a, a bit of a discovery and programming stage at the start of our projects where we're asking our clients ultimately what are their goals? What do they want to accomplish? Are there any requirements that are going to put limitations on it? We want to narrow down this mm-hmm. big picture idea of I need a recording studio into, okay, I'm a post-production mix engineer. I need a control room with a one speaker setup and I record voiceover, so I need a booth. And that influences kind of the start of it It helps guide us in determining the footprint of the audio specific rooms in the facility
2: hello
1: it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on
0: ChumbaCasino.com. i looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino's home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com
2: and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. That meeting, is that you and the client personally? Is that you and your partner? Uh, yeah,
0: typically it's myself, my business partner, maybe one or two key staff members who are project managers or designers themselves who will uh, mm-hmm. be working on the project.
2: Do the clients typically know what they want, or is it you kind of explaining the, the options? How much do the people who are hiring you know at the start of this process?
0: They know enough that they can't do it themselves, which is kind of why we've gotten the call. So usually usually an audio engineer or, or recording studio owner will, will kind of hit a point where they've taken it as far as they can take it. And maybe they've built their career, they've worked out of their bedroom, they've worked out of a small kind of project studio that they threw together in an office or something, and then they realize, realize that they need to actually have a dedicated space to do their work. And at that point, that's where it starts getting into, I don't know how to soundproof a room. I don't know how to make a room sound a certain way. I don't know how to build the systems within my room to accommodate the type of work that I'm doing.
2: When you show up for that meeting, you say, do you have like a portfolio of like, here's the deluxe room, <laughs> here's the like mid-range? <laughs> like, what do you, a how, little, how do you walk through that? Uh, there's, yeah. always,
0: there's always, every client has a certain degree of budgetary constraints. And uh, we like to to offer them sort of uh, maybe a good, better, and best option for anything that we're pitching them.
2: Is there an art to that where like you show them the good, better, and best, but you really, you know, the one they want to buy <laughs> or you, you know, you want the one you want to get them to? So one option's really a little better than the others.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's always a correlation between how much a project is going to cost and what the end result will be. Some of that will be how well the space is isolated. Some will be how accurate the environment is in terms of how it sounds. If you're the engineer sitting in the listening position, you want it to be as accurate as possible. Some might have to do with the aesthetics. The more that someone has for finer finishes will influence how nice the space looks.
2: How nice a finish is the Slate Studio? Like, what would you say? Where are we working at here?
0: I like what we did. This I would put this in the better category. Better? Yeah.
2: Not best, but better. Yeah. Okay. We're not just working at a garage here.
0: We were brought in to
2: make it better than it was. It was in the good category. (laughs) (laughs) It was okay. We used to record out of, in the old office, there was like this kind of portable studio. There was like a big black...
0: Box. Oh I, I hate those things
2: yeah it was it was you could kind of move it in it was like imagine one of those modular shipping crates that you see coming on a boat from China except you put people in to make a podcast inside it. yeah, it's uh, depressing. Where do you find people want to cut costs or save money? And do you find people want to cut costs a lot? Yeah, absolutely. I
0: I think most people look to cut costs in, we kind of split our work into two primary disciplines when we're talking about the acoustics of a space. You have the sound isolation, or a lot of people say soundproofing, and you have the room acoustics or room treatment, which are applications that are on the walls to influence how the room sounds, materials that either absorb sound or reflect and diffuse it. A lot of people want their environments to sound good and are maybe a little bit more willing to sacrifice on the sound isolation. So, hey, listen, if I have to stop a take every once in a while because there's a loud sound outside or I bother my neighbor a little bit, we'll live with that. But it's got to sound good within the space.
2: I like that. Yeah. Fuck the neighbor.
0: Exactly. <laughs> you know, in New York City, we all live in crazy buildings where we probably have neighbors on six sides. So yeah. you're going to you're gonna piss someone off.
2: Yeah, I'm not paying for their enjoyment. Exactly. I mean, does that lead to doing a blueprint? What are you creating there afterwards? Where does that meeting lead to?
0: Yeah, uh, ultimately that meeting leads to us in our discovery phase kind of coming back to them with an initial floor plan, a rough budget, a timeline, basically a roadmap of what it's going to take for them to turn this this big picture idea of I need a recording studio into something that's actionable. From there, we go through a a more traditional, uh, very similar to what an architecture firm would go through, design development process, where we would take that and turn that into a set of blueprints or construction documents that then a contractor can come in and build off of uh, and Mm. work off of.
2: Was one of your partners an architect at some point, or is that a skill that you have that you can actually do blueprints yourself now?
0: We've gotten to the point where we can completely draw blueprints that are buildable, but we work really closely with architects. So Mm -hmm. uh, anything that's being built in New York City and in most places ultimately has to hit the desk of the Department of Buildings to get a stamp of approval before permits can be issued and construction can begin. So we work closely with architects who kind of handle that process.
2: And where does it go from there?
0: So at that point, we ourselves are are not uh, typically the ones who come in and do what I would call the heavy construction. We're not the ones who are are building buildings, building uh, floors, walls, ceilings. Typically, that work gets handed off to a contractor. Mm-hmm. But we're usually providing project management services to our clients through that portion of the project to make sure that everything's kind of being built to specification.
2: So are you sort of a general contractor, or are you you hire a general contractor? We hire a
0: general contractor. contractor. So
2: yeah. this is this is the, the they're the layers of contract. I so, my dad at one point was a general contractor and He hired me for one summer to be an unskilled laborer, so I got, (laughs) he lost one. And so he's like, I got a summer job for you, kid. Um, But so there are layers of this. You're running, you're the architectural firm, essentially. And then you've got the general contractor, which for listeners is sort of, they run the project and then they hire the subcontractors who are the guys who are actually the carpenters and the people hanging ceilings and stuff like that.
0: It's an incredible amount of people that end up touching a project like this Uh, with us uh, kind of taking the lead role as a designer, working alongside an architect, then you have folks who are are uh, potentially on a project, there might be a structural engineer, there might be what's called an MEP engineer, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing, who are designing the air conditioning systems, the electrical systems, plumbing systems. Uh, From there, there might be someone called an expediter, who literally their entire job is code compliance review and submitting things to the DOB. They're the person who who knows everyone in the DOB and goes down there and and makes sure your plans get delivered and approved. The Um, the knows someone is key. Yeah, yeah. You're not supposed
2: to uh, do favors in the
0: DOB. That doesn't...
2: No, never, 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 ever. It's like if you look at the org chart for any single construction job, it's actually kind of, it's nuts where the arrows flow and how many different people are involved in it and touch it.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, On average, I'd say our projects ultimately have, you know, a bare minimum of uh, maybe 15 people who work on that project. And on the larger ones, when you count all the subcontractors, the electricians, the the HVAC guys, and then our entire crew coming in to build acoustic treatments, wire the studios, configure the systems and software, it, it can be upwards of 20 or 30 easily.
2: And so when you say the major construction, you're talking about the walls, the wiring, the sort of guts of the place. Correct, right? yeah. Yeah, just like the actual physical space inside the building. That's, Correct. That's what you're hiring the general contractor. Today.
0: Yeah, for most of it. Our, our firm does do, my business partners, on the technical side of recording studios. So all the equipment and systems within those, uh, he and, and a portion of our team design the systems. And then we also are the ones to pull the wires through the walls. So you have connectivity uh, from room to room. You need the microphone that you have in your ISO booth to connect back to the equipment in the control room to be able to record. We run all those wires. Okay,
2: so you actually are doing some of that. We are, yeah. yeah. How many contractors have you worked with over the years? Let me start with that question. Uh, Probably a a, a couple dozen. Okay, how many of them will you never work with again? Probably a couple dozen, yeah. Because <laughs> I, 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 what what's the nightmare scenario you can run into working with contractors?
0: Well, ask any contractor at any point, and the completion date is always six to eight weeks away. Yes. And you wait five weeks, and you ask them again, and it's, yeah, we'll be done in about six to eight weeks. Yeah, uh, And that just goes on for a while. It's Zeno's paradox to some extent for...
2: You, you're always halfway getting halfway there
0: yeah there there are some fantastic contractors out there over, over the years we've I would say that we do have a small collection of very talented very professional contractors that we love to bring in on our projects but there are specialty contractors they're guys who do nothing but build recording studios so they've got a, an advanced skill set and the cost to hire them is significantly more than just hiring your your run-of-the-mill general contractor
2: so you said that once the guts of the place are also going to set up the walls you show up and start doing wiring, I, uh, what other parts of the process do you then take over?
0: Kind of most of the things that are visible at the end of the project. So when you're when you're in the room and you're looking at the walls and ceilings, there may be large amounts of fabric on the walls. It, typically behind those fabrics are materials that are influencing the way the room sounds, typically for absorption or diffusion, the, the scattering of sound energy. So we're coming in and we've designed for this. It's been part of our blueprints from the start of the project. So we've got a fabrication shop here in in New York where we uh, are pre-building a lot of these things, bringing them to the site, installing them. We're uh, installing the the wiring, which creates connectivity between different pieces of equipment or different rooms. Typically in a recording studio, you'll have a big custom piece of furniture, a desk, or a series of of racks that hold equipment. Uh, We're building those, installing them, uh, installing computers, and then configuring all of it to make it all work well together.
2: How many different ways can you build a sound panel? How much variety is there? There can be quite a bit. Uh, there are a few different substrates
0: that are out there that are kind of the go-tos. Yeah. Uh, substrate being the material behind the fabric that does the absorption. So uh, the most common is a type of fiberglass, not too different from what you might see if you're a kid and you're exploring your attic at home and you see that pink fluffy stuff that looks fun to touch, um, <laughs> but makes you really itchy. Yeah. Um, don't do it. uh, that is a material that has a very high sound absorption coefficients. It's it's a material that is going to do a great job of. A absorbing sound energy and preventing that sound energy from then reflecting through the room. So in terms of variety of different ways to build it, a lot of it has to do with the the depth of that acoustic panel, uh, certain characteristics in regards to the absorption of low frequencies. Uh, Low frequencies are very hard to absorb. So you have, uh, if you want to make a podcast studio, relatively simple. We're dealing with wanting to absorb the frequencies of the human voice. There's a, a relatively narrow range of that energy. When you're dealing with something that's fuller frequency, say music, say a drum, kit, if you want to absorb the low frequency energy from the kick drum, you need specialty types of absorbers. And they get very complex. There's a lot of math involved in determining exactly the right approach and the right materials to use to design absorbers for that energy.
2: Okay, so if you're building a, a special kick drum absorber, <laughs> <Sure. Yeah. laughs> what, how does that change what you're, the actual product you're making? So whereas maybe a, a mid-band and high-band frequency
0: absorber, something that uh, like what we're seeing in this room right here, is really at its at its core it's an absorptive material like fiberglass in a wooden frame covered with fabric. Something like a low-frequency absorber, uh, we're doing a series of them for a client right now, building a type of absorber called a, a Helmholtz resonator, which functions kind of like if you think of a soda bottle and you still have some soda in it and you blow across the top of it and it makes a sound, you drink a little bit more of that soda and you blow across it again and that sound is still there, but it's a little bit lower in frequency. We can make absorbers that naturally resonate at a frequency that we want to absorb. So, A room may have an issue where it's it itself is is just naturally resonating at a very low frequency and if that happens that can cause the engineer to improperly mix the content they're trying to mix if i'm mixing a song and my room is naturally resonating at 50 hertz a very low frequency then when i go to mix kick drums in my music i'm going to say overcompensate for this lie acoustic lie that my room is telling me about how that kick drum sounds so i might need that sound absorbed, and through the process of designing these specialty Helmholtz resonators, these giant reverberant, uh, think of it as a cylinder, they're built to naturally resonate at a target frequency. So we do uh, do a little bit of math looking at the, the characteristics of that device, uh, what's its diameter, what's its height, and what's its volume. We make an opening in it, just like a soda bottle, what's the size of that opening and the length of the neck on that, on that cylinder. And we can customize it to absorb a specific frequency or set of frequencies that we want to absorb.
2: And when you said that if he was mixing without the absorber, you'd overcompensate, would he just mix in Not enough kick drum, too much kick drum, Could probably. Yeah, it could be be a little bit from column A, a little from column B. Um, Rooms, any
0: environment, any space where you've got air contained within a volume is going to just naturally have frequencies that it wants to resonate at. And usually those frequencies are related to the dimensions of the room. So if I've got a room that's 10 feet long, well, there's a frequency that has an actual physical wavelength, the length of the wave in air that is also equal to 10 feet. Well, that that frequency will just naturally resonate in the room. And it's never just one waveform. It's always a waveform and then maybe a reflection of that waveform. When those two waveforms cross paths, they might be in phase or out of phase with each other. They're going to share a relationship. And depending on how they interact with one another, you could get something called constructive interference or destructive interference, where that sound is actually perceived as being louder or softer in amplitude than it actually is when it leaves the speakers.
2: And all this is important because in the end, most sound engineers or producers, are, are, they're mixing from speakers that are playing it's not like they they don't actually always have headphones on they're mixing into a room right like that's fundamentally why their space has to sound right
0: absolutely so you can have a really great high-end set of speakers that sound beautifully but ultimately what we hear is not just sort of a direct transfer of that sound from the speaker to our ears Uh, a small amount of that energy is but the greater amount of that energy actually leaves the speakers and interacts with the room and then returns to our ears as reflected energy
2: dumb question sure Why don't they just save a bunch of money and mix with headphones?
0: Because headphones are inherently inaccurate. Inherently? What does that mean? Well, not that they're necessarily completely inaccurate to mix off of, but most likely they struggle to reproduce low frequencies. Huh. So the bass is going to suck. Correct. And especially once you start getting into, say, the post-production film and television world, where all of a sudden we're not just listening to a signal that is stereo with a, a left channel and a right channel. All of a sudden we're listening to something that's in surround sound, where you've got a center channel and and speakers behind you and you've got a subwoofer. Maybe it's 5-1, maybe it's 7-1. There's a lot, of, a lot of new spaces that we're designing that are following a, a protocol that Dolby's developed called Atmos, which is somewhat uh, spherical sound. Where you also have speaker sources that are above the listening environment. So you can perceive sounds passing overhead and you just can't replicate that with a set of headphones.
2: I, I guess the way I'm now thinking about it as I talk to you is not so much even a band, but uh, you know, someone mixing a movie. Like I was just watching The Avengers last night and it's yeah, like you, you can't mix that into headphones. If you're going to design sound for a theater, you need to be creating it in a room where it's going to be able to replicate that sort of. Correct. So that's that's why you can't. My solution's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's a stopgap. It
0: works, a- you know, and a lot of people do. Probably not their final mixes, but even professional audio engineers with fantastic rooms will reference on a variety of different sets of speakers. We've got clients who have incredibly complicated systems, incredibly well-built rooms, but at the end of the day, if that content is a Hulu advertisement Advertisement, and that advertisement is going to be
2: played back on a laptop, but they've got to make sure it's going to sound good on the laptop as well. It's the old trick of taking your mix out to the car and blasting exactly. it on some shitty Volvo speakers just yeah. to hear out sounds.
0: You want to reference it in locations that are similar to where the end
2: consumer will be listening to it. Yes, yeah, so you have the high end and the low. Correct. You try to get it as close to best to both worlds as possible. So-
1: this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
2: So I think part of the takeaway is that from what we just talked about is the actual stuff you are building, these panels and such, your design can range from fairly simple, which seems like what we've got in here is like pretty basic, to extremely complex, like essentially resonators to perfect the sound for a room. What I'm kind of wondering is the really technical stuff that you're describing, how did you learn all of that? I think my knowledge started with some schooling. I had some courses
0: in acoustics. A lot of it grew when, after I graduated and and began working and kind of going on this path of designing studios, I would say that in my early days, a lot of my designs were relatively simple and something like maybe that Helmholtz resonator that I described was a little uh, beyond my existing knowledge and capabilities. I had an opportunity to go back to my alma mater and teach the acoustics course there. They asked me if it was something I would want to do, and that provided just a great opportunity to keep learning. Uh, Interesting. In order to teach it, I had to know it to a greater degree than I think I had prior to that. So in order
2: to teach the course, you had to go back and hit the books. I did.
0: Yeah. And, and I've never really stopped learning. I'm a, a big proponent of always learning. Having a fabrication shop has allowed us to do a lot of trial and error. So we can prototype different things. As we're coming across problems that our clients may have and brainstorming different ways of solving them and researching uh, different approaches that we might be able to take, we can then kind of go over to our shop and say, well, let's prototype one of
2: these. Let's try it out. Let's see if it it actually works. You have an idea for something and you've never done it before. You go, all right, let's, let's experiment a while. Absolutely. But you can do a few and get it wrong a few times. Yeah. Exactly. How, how many times do you have to get it wrong usually before you get it right? A couple, a couple. <laughs>
0: we've definitely had a few instances where we've built something and, and found that it just didn't really work the way that we were hoping to. And, and we're happy to take ownership over that and, and take it down and try again.
2: When you were in the process of building out panels and the materials that are going to a room, are you personally actually doing the building? Are you in the shop or is that something you have employees doing?
0: Uh, I used to be and now my employees call me an office guy. Uh, (laughs) I've kind of as the company's grown as more of my role has shifted into designing on our biggest projects as well as uh, I do a lot of sales meetings and client interaction. I'm doing a lot less of the fabrication. I try to get on site with some regularity, but not as often as I think I'd like to. I really enjoy that part of it.
2: So there was a time where you were you were actually in the shop. There was a time. Yeah. So what tools do you use to actually build a panel? Like what is there like big machinery involved?
0: What is it? Most of it is standard woodworking tools. We're using the things that you would find in say a cabinetry shop. We're using table saws and joiners and planers, routers, uh, all
2: of the above. So it's you, some fiberglass, a saw and a table. Just cutting and sewing. Just getting itchy. Just getting itchy. Yeah. Really? Is that like is that actually a, like a hazard of the job? That it happens? is.
0: Uh, when you own your own business, you discover the necessary evil of workers' comp insurance. And they come in and they look at your staff's work and what is the greatest risk. And for us, uh, several staff members are put into a high-risk category specifically because they work with insulation. Mm-hmm. So we have to take a lot of measures to make sure that they're safe, that they're protected. So we could be in the shop working with insulation and our crew is wearing Tyvek suits and respirators and goggles and gloves just to make sure that they're not breathing in the fiberglass, that they're not getting it on their skin. Is that because breathing that in could cause lung problems or cancer or something in the future it could it's it's certainly not good for you and I always think of those you may have mesothelioma you know if you
2: do call this law firm
0: (laughs) commercial yeah
2: you don't want to be the next one in court for that no you don't want to be a statistic Uh, now I'm thinking about all the times I hung out in like my grandparents attic playing with the pink stuff (laughs) oh yeah yeah some of it's still in there great yeah absolutely great did you have to wear all those suits and stuff when you were working were you taking all those proper precautions when you were with the business was smaller and you were just doing the stuff yourself?
0: Yeah, typically, I think we've kind of evolved into the let's just be on the extra safe side and wear Tyvek suits but I would always wear protective mask to make sure that I wasn't breathing it in and goggles and long sleeve shirts and I'd put on gloves and actually tape the gloves to the end of my sleeves just to make sure nothing could kind of get up the sleeve. Um, Because the moment you get that on your skin, it's just with you all day until you take a shower and it's pretty uncomfortable.
2: It's like a woodworking shop but everyone's dressed like they're you know, dealing with hazmats. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting the picture now. Yep. So you build the panels in a shop. Is there any other material that you're actually making or building or what other kinds of things are you producing that you're going to bring in and install? Yeah, in addition
0: to the absorption panels, we're also building things that are called diffusers, which are designed to scatter sound. So typically these are going to be built out of wood. They're going to be maybe two foot by two foot or two foot by four foot. Uh, and they're going to have a, a variety of different surfaces on them that as sound energy comes in contact with them, that sound energy. Is then dispersed throughout the room and scattered. So they've got a lot of different levels to them, depths. So they're very, very pretty, very interesting looking. It's kind of like a fine piece of cabinetry mixed with something that's
2: almost like a, an art piece. We don't have one in here. You, you do don't not. not. What is the purpose of having that? Diff- Why do you want to scatter sound? In something, like a,
0: in something like a podcast studio, you really want that kind of radio voice. You want it non-environmental. You don't really want to hear the room. Whereas in, say, more of a live room environment, we would say that a room that has a lot of reverberations would be live and a room that has few reverberations would be a end room. Mm-hmm. So a live room where you might record something like an entire band or an orchestra, if you were to simply apply absorptive materials to all of the surfaces, you would take the character out of the room. It wouldn't really sound all that interesting. If you make a room that's a little bit more reverberant, then there's there's some character to it. It can sound pleasing. But when you do that, more often than not, you don't just want, say, a single large reflective material that's going to allow all energy to just come straight back towards the source. You want to scatter some of that energy so our ears perceive it more as a reverberation or lots of reflections kind of spread
2: out over time. It's interesting because it, it's you're fine tuning the room right it sounds like you take this space and it's it's raw just four walls and, and some chairs or whatever, <laughs> and you're then putting up material that's going to absorb the sound, and then you're putting up material that's going to scatter the sound, and it's you, kind of, you're you're calibrating it to get exactly the frequency and the effects that you want.
0: Yeah, and it's all relative to what the content
2: being created within the space is and what the workflow is. Is there any special skill to actually installing this stuff once you've built it?
0: Most of it, it's it's carpentry. So depending on the type of treatment that we're doing, it, we could be suspending something from a ceiling where we're on scaffolding uh, 20 feet above the floor. Some of it could just be as simple as hanging something on the wall that's really no more complex than just hanging a piece of artwork and
2: you've personally been on the scaffolding. I suspending. have, yes, yes. <laughs> Suspended midair. Yes. Uh, is, is that the kind of thing where you like have an accident or like is there, I guess this is another workers' comp issue. Yeah,
0: yeah. in our earlier days before we maybe fully uh, fully understood all the liability and risk associated with the work that we did, you know, maybe we got ourselves into some some less than safe situations. No one's
2: ever been hurt. We've uh, No one's well, ever fallen well, from a ladder. Well, let's hear about this. What was a less than safe? That's firmly in the past and nobody was hurt. If anyone is listening with any legal, Authority here. Well, and it was <laughs> and it was me, uh,
0: and as the owner of the business, I don't have to have workers' comp insurance on myself. So uh, there's definitely a, a picture floating out there of me standing on the top rung of a ladder where it says "Don't stand," and I'm installing a speaker into the ceiling overhead. And the ladder's set up on a staircase, and someone else is sitting on a ledge a few feet away, leaning over, holding a belt loop so I don't fall. <laughs>
2: wow, <laughs> yeah, holding you by the oh, Jesus.
0: Yeah. Why were you installing something on a staircase? What were you building? This was for one of our very first clients and he was a, a guy who's a, a producer and he wanted a recording studio at home and kind of while we were there, we had designed his space, we uh, built it, and while we were there, he wanted distributed audio throughout his entire house so he could entertain guests and ha- have music playing from every room or you know, be able to send uh, well, he also had a DJ booth in his living room. Uh, he could kind of send throw parties and send music throughout the house so one speaker the best place for it just ended up being at the top of this stairwell so as you went from his apartment up to the roof deck you never had to leave the music
2: (laughs) <laughs> you're like, yeah. all right, yeah, doing we, it. we can do that. Yeah. We can do it, absolutely, sir. Yeah. This is, sounds like a good client. It was a great client. Yep. Yeah, we still work with him today. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, it sounds like a very successful producer. He is. Yeah. Okay, I won't go further than that. It's probably some NDA there. If you're there, he's a he's a pretty private guy. Do you do a lot of work like that? As well, I mean, obviously, the, you said the main work you do are these big professional studios now. But like, do you also? do work in kind of music industries, people's homes as well? Or? Yeah, certainly. Um, We kind of spread out of recording
0: studios or maybe spread out of the big recording studios to do a handful of different things. We, we get our hands dirty acoustically treating spaces like offices and the occasional restaurant or bar, a lot of conference rooms. And in terms of people at home, yeah, I think one of the things that's always separated us from our competitors is that whereas a lot of our competitors kind of only want to see you build a million dollar recording studio and they don't want to talk to you if your budget's less than that, we're happy to help the little guys. You know, So there are a lot of people that are just kind of starting out who say need a home studio or, or they've got an idea and they just need to make things a little bit better than they have at home. And we're happy to go in and work with their budgets, which are probably a lot tighter than, say the big successful music producer that wants to add music in his home, it might be someone
2: who's got a slimmer budget and they just want to make things sound a little better. Is the idea that you're getting on the ground floor with those people and maybe one day if they get bigger, you'll get the bigger job? Or? Yeah,
0: maybe that's there a little bit. But also, I think it's nice to just help those folks. They've called us, they're looking for a solution, and, and if every door is getting slammed in front of their face, and we can say, yeah, sure, you know, set their expectations properly at what we can accomplish with their budget so that they fully understand what they're going to get at the end of the day. Today, but still find ways to help them and make their spaces sound better, uh, we want to do that.
2: Once you've actually built out a space and you know, finished up the carpentry, Assume there has to be a testing period or something to figure out if you did the job right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, How do you do that with some test equipment?
0: Uh, we've got specialty microphones that we can kind of set up in the environment that are very accurate, that can pick up sound from all directions very evenly. And so we can pump a series of test signals through their speakers and record that in our microphone, and then compare that to the source signal. So if you've got if you've got a source signal that is known and calibrated, and you play that through a speaker you pick it up in your test microphone and compare it to what you've recorded through the microphone and you split the difference. The difference is the way that the room has changed that sound.
2: So mm-hmm. we can
0: look at those measurements and gain all sorts of useful information about how the room sounds. Uh, obviously, we can hear it with our ears, but we want to quantify it. Is the room reverberant? Yes or no. At what frequencies? By how long? Is the room naturally resonating at certain frequencies? Yes or no. At what frequencies? What can we do to improve that or change it. So there's always this process of prediction before something gets built, but then measuring, quantifying, iterating after the process has been done.
2: If you realize you've made a mistake or something hasn't, I shouldn't say make a mistake, if something (laughs) hasn't panned out perfectly or gotten the desired effect, how do you fix that? We try and
0: understand why, first and foremost. Usually there's a logical path that you can approach to determining exactly where things went wrong or why something's not reacting a certain way. From there, it depends on is this something that we saw ahead of time that was maybe likely going to be an issue? Was this issue something that could have been solved if maybe the client's budgetary constraints were different? Did we let the client know that this? problem might exist and set their expectations properly. If we did all of that, then it might just be a matter of saying, hey, here's a next step that we can take to make this a little bit better. There's not really any such thing as a perfect room. So we always want to make rooms sound better than they were to begin with, but based on kind of the real world and budgetary constraints, sometimes we're just inching forward. At what point is the job over for you guys? We always like to say that we take projects from conception to completion. So for us, the job's not really done until the the engineer is is sitting and working within their space, running client sessions and operating and no longer kind of running into any issues. The slowest kind of wind down part of that is the systems that go into the studio, which can be pretty complex. A lot of moving pieces, a lot of software, a lot of things that need to be configured, a lot of wires with different signals where the routing has to be absolutely perfect and a lot of little points of failure where all these wires are soldered together. So after we finish building a space and we configure their systems, there's always kind of a period of of QC where we're, we're going and we're checking absolutely everything that we did and trying to find problems before the client actually has their own clients in there paying them to do work.
2: You said your employees now make fun of you as a front office guy. I am. I am the office guy. Yes. So so we've kind of gone through the process involved in building one of these studios. I'm curious, how do you actually spend your day now? Are you in front of a computer in the morning doing emails and through the afternoon still doing emails? Or what's actually occupying your time? A lot of emails. A lot of emails, a lot of meetings. I try and designate a couple days a week that are devoted just
0: purely to design work, where Mm -hmm. I, I actually get to kind of dive into the meat of what we do. A lot of it, though, is just kind of running the business. Lots of Emails, lots of sales meetings, meeting clients, making site visits, making sure projects that are underway are happening smoothly and to plan. When you're actually doing the design work, what kind of programs are you using? There's a few different things for the actual design to make the blueprints. We're using a piece of uh, computer-aided drafting software called Vectorworks. This software also allows us to design the systems that are going to be in the facilities as well. So we've really kind of unified our technical designs and our space designs, our spatial designs. But separately from that, we've got a, a slew of different different modeling and prediction softwares that we use where we can accurately predict how a sound will maybe transmit through a wall or, as I mentioned earlier, how a room will actually sound. And
2: so you try to get like two, three days a week where you're just head in the computer and doing all the modeling and doing the blueprints exactly and that's the fun part I that's guess. that's the fun part you get to nerd out
0: i nerd out i try and gain uh you know just kind of a hyper focus and the days fly by uh, those are the days where I'm, I'm looking at my watch saying how is it already you know five o'clock six o'clock this yeah. day has just gotten away from me do you like the site visits i love the site visits yeah. yeah i love being able to especially being here in new york i've gotten to know the city so well because we have clients in every kind of corner of the city i get to go and i get to visit Visit them and and see as something that we've designed transforms from something that's just on a computer or just on paper into an actual physical space and see it come to life. That's a lot of fun for me.
2: All right, man. It's been fun having you here. Jordan. Thank thank you. you. Yeah. Thanks for telling me about how this got (laughs) built. No problem. My pleasure. That is it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the audio geekery, the supreme amount of nerdery that went on throughout that discussion. If you did, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Otherwise, send us an email at working at slate.com. Again, working at slate.com. As always, Working is produced by the inimitable Jasmine Molly. Also, thank you to Justin D. Wright, not only for the ad music, he also suggested the guest this week. He is the person who said we should talk to Tim. Thanks, Justin. I'm Jordan Weissman. I'll catch you next week.